Hello, I'm Mark Sweeney, and this is I'm the Guns Reboot Review, a podcast indexing the adventures of the Legion of Superheroes. More specifically, the stories of the Reboot Legion, a sort of Ultimates version of the team that DC Comics published from 1994 through 2004. At the height of its membership, this version of the Legion was the most diverse the team of super future teens had ever been, and... Uh, I think it kind of came closest to what I consider the true spirit of the Legion. The stories of this team are almost all uncollected, which makes it a perfect topic for I'm the Gun, which I've used to sort of highlight a lot of uncollected stuff. The adventures of this Legion ran through two regular monthly titles, which is a lot better than the zero monthly titles the adventures of the Legion run through now. So usually episodes of this podcast will recap an issue each of Legion of Superheroes, and Legionnaires. This time out, however, I'm going to take a look at Legionnaires Annual Number 2, cover dated 1995. Now, DC Annuals during the 90s all tried to conform to some sort of theme or event. Um, some of these were really well executed, some not so much. Um, but in 1995, all the annuals carry the masthead Year One. So the stories in those books usually told what was a very early adventure in the career of Robin or Superman, what have you. Um, since this version of the Legion had only been around for one year, the story in Legionnaire's annual number two was just another chapter in their monthly adventures. Well, to say this was just another chapter is it's a little misleading. This story, called The Four Horsemen, was kind of like the exclamation point on the first year of Legion stories. It's the finale, really, of the story that's been building since the number zero issues that launched the team. And it features the final confrontation between the Legion and the hateful specious group, the White Triangle. So the creative team on this issue is as follows, written by Mark Wade, Tom McCraw, and Tom Pyre. It's penciled by Jeffrey Moy, who had to take a couple months off of his duties on the monthly Legionnaires title to crank out the 47 pages of this annual. We've got his partner in crime, W.C. Karani on inks, and they also did the cover featuring the Legion founders, Cosmic Boy, Saturn Girl, and Livewire ready to take on all comers. It's lettered by Pat Prentice, colored by Tom McCraw, and edited by Mike McAvaney and Casey Carlson. The issue opens with a splash page image of a beaten and bloodied Evolvo. Evolvo is a member of the workforce, a rival super team to the Legion founded by all-around creep, uh, kind of the Donald Trump of the future, Leland McCauley. Last episode, the Legion had called in workforce to help deal with the arrival of a super-powered foursome from the planet Daxum. Away from the native Red Sun, Daxamites have a full array of superpowers, strength and vulnerability, Invulnerability to everything but lead, uh, flight, vision powers, things like that. These Daxamites are kind of the enforcers for the White Triangle. They just got done laying waste to the planet Trom, and were now poised to do the same thing to Earth. Evolvo and his teammate Spider Girl were dispatched to defend the city of Miami, but they were easily defeated by one of the Daxamites. His name is Sugin. Sugin takes his place in orbit above the Earth with his three fellows to plot their next move, 
when one of them sees down below an Earthman helping a, an alien that looks a little bit like Morbo from Futurama. He sends down a beam of heat vision that fries them both. Interspecies cooperation is not tolerated by the White Triangle, which of course makes them completely and philosophically opposed to the United Planets and to the Legion of Superheroes. In a Metropolis Medical Center, Cosmic Boy is checking in with the recuperating Saturn Girl, who since her confrontation with the Composite Man covered a few episodes back, has been sort of forced into a childlike state. Cosmic Boy, deep within the darkest crisis the Legion has yet faced, bemoans the fact that he can't rely on Saturn Girl's advice. Things appear so dark that Kaz has come to say goodbye, and this causes Imra to accidentally snip off the head of a paper doll she's been making. She breaks down and cries for Garth. Just then, the windows in the hospital shatter. One of the Daxamites has flown through the building, but somehow Cosmic Boy is able to use his magnetic powers to ease the fall of the building. Really nice demonstration of Kaza's power. Back in orbit, another Daxamite begins taking out a weather control satellite where he says something interesting. He asks if humans are so perverse that they can't tolerate their own planet's nature. Interesting comment. Ultra Boy, though, is there to confront him along with Apparition, and although Joe gets in a good shot, the Daxamite proves too fast and sends Joe and himself hurtling toward the Earth. Somewhere on the planet, Leviathan, Triad, Spark, and Workforce member Inferno are defending Mount Swan. Nice little tribute to longtime Superman and Legion artist Kurt Swan. Mount Swan is a volcano used to power, we're told, vast cities. That Daxamite Sugin is there, and he uses his super breath to splash up molten lava on Leviathan. The Legionnaires try to come up with a plan to keep Sugin away from the power taps that are deep within the volcano, um, but they fail, and Mount Swan explodes. In Legion headquarters, Brainiac 5 is working on a project for R.J. Bran, with whom he's communicating via future Skype. Brainiac asks Brand where they'll be able to get the rare element Tarnium, which is essential to reopen the United Planet's stargates. Now that the only beings capable of producing Tarnium, those on the planet Trom, have been killed by the Daxamites. Brand says they'll, they'll work it out, just as Cosmic Boy enters and ends the transmission abruptly. He doesn't want the plan they're cooking up to be overheard by the super senses of the Daxamites. Whatever Brainy's doing will be kept from the White Triangle, uh, and also from the readers, which helps kind of build suspense in the story. A really nice choice made by Wade and company. The wall in the room they're in suddenly melts, and in walks Livewire, former Legionnaire and former workforce member. He's had to make his way through a suddenly panic-stricken mob in the city, I guess, to offer his help. Cosmic Boy 
uses the opportunity to deputize Garth with a Legion flight ring and tells him that there's something he wants him to do that only Garth can pull off. In the nearby UP headquarters, Daxamite delegate Roxas is trying to convince his colleagues on screens that Daxamites are not responsible for the current acts of aggression. This conversation is interrupted by the arrival of Andromeda, who smashes through the window and attacks Roxas. Andromeda, of course, feels betrayed by Roxas, and she feels perhaps a tinge of self-loathing after surrendering the anti-lead serum to the Daxamites. Laurel smashes Roxas into a wall, but is surprised to discover that the villain has taken the serum himself, and his damaged transuit is not a problem. Lead won't affect his ability to attempt to kick her ass. Somewhere else on the planet, Invisible Kid and Chameleon encounter another of the Daxamites, Fethro Jorn, as he destroys a building belonging to the Church of Universal Being. I'm a little bothered by the fact that this Daxamite looks so much like Invisible Kid. He's turned up in a couple of other issues, and he sports a tight-fitting black bodysuit and black headband, just like Invisible Kid. And he has the same hair color and skin color. Very unimaginative look. He's way too close in appearance to someone he's about to lay a beating on. Chameleon tries morphing into a creature from Daxamite mythology, but uh, that doesn't phase Fethro as much as he'd hoped, and Fethro punches him out. When Cosmic Boy instructs remotely for them to rip Fethro's trans suit, Lyle reports back that he's not wearing one, which causes the revelation that these Daxamites aren't vulnerable to the lead in Earth's atmosphere as they had hoped. Things just got a lot harder. When Kaz breaks the news to Brainy, he rightly assumes that they've been given a dose of the serum that Brainy had designed specifically for Andromeda. Since the serum must be keyed to a being's individual physiology, Brainy postulates that the formula they've ingested is driving the Daxamites insane. So things just got a lot, lot harder. In the hospital, Livewire drops in on a pleasantly surprised Saturn girl. He says the Legion's in trouble, but they have a plan, and they need her help. The shock of seeing her friend seems to cut through the mental problems that she's been having. In Cape Town, South Africa, Karate Kid of the workforce is defending the large spaceport there alone. As a huge mob, anxious to get off the planet, gathers there, one of the Daxamites attacks. Karate Kid actually he gives as good as he gets, till a piece of shrapnel lodges itself in his leg. But courageously willing to fight on, Karate Kid is surprised when the Daxamite takes off, convinced that the surprising amount of resistance he got from such a non-powered opponent that it was all a dream. The riot in Metropolis continues to rage as the three Legion founders converge for a last stand at headquarters. Cosmic Boy relays Saturn Girl as part of the plan to somehow mentally call uh, or herd the Daxamites to their location. Inside UP headquarters, Laurel's fight with Roxas crashes through the ceiling of the main council chamber and then actually through one more floor into the basement where the building's main power supply is maintained. From iconography on some of the structures and equipment, we can see that the power source is atomic. 
just as Roxas is to land at least a very serious blow on Andromeda. His body starts to convulse violently, much to his own and Laurel's surprise. In Japan, the Daxamite Sugin is using Super Breath to call up a huge tsunami as XS one by one starts removing people from the beach. Sugin joins her on the ground and matches her step for step. She continues to save people, but Sugin kills at least one more with a super chop to the neck. This is just as the wave hits, though. Jenny manages to pull one last survivor to the surface as Sugin flies away telling her to ask whatever pathetic god spawned her to absolve her of the sin of filthing his universe. We next check in with RJ Brand, who's continuing to make his way toward Earth in his little cruiser. He's met by Fethro Jorn, who attempts to hurl at the cruiser no less a weapon than the Eiffel Tower itself. The hand of a mysterious passenger in Brand's cruiser waves, and the tower dissipates into a cloud of smoke. This seems to give Fethro some, a moment of realization, and almost in fear, he makes his way back down to the planet pretty hastily. Also making her way down to Earth is Apparition, who's looking for some sign that Ultra Boy survived his fall with the Daxamite earlier in the issue. Suddenly Joe bursts through the tops of the trees, launching himself at the approaching white triangular Apparition calls out to Joe to switch from strength to invulnerability. Of course, that's how Ultra Boy's powers work. And Joe smashes into him. The two men fall to the earth. The Daxamite seeming to get the worst of the collision. Apparition asks Joe if he's alright. And he responds, Who's asking? There's three of you, as he's kind of clutching his head. This is kind of a telling remark. Won't be going into this too much here at the risk of 20-year-old spoilers, but I can see this back then just being a, perceived as a, as a throwaway remark. But it's not. The two teens embrace, and after the high of combat, just confess their love for each other when flash! Daxamite does it again, a full page of destruction as the Triangular's heat vision incinerates the pair. This page is very reminiscent of the destruction of Trom, covered last episode. Stark high contrast, orange and black. On the next page, the Daxamite takes off, leaving the invulnerable Joe cradling Tinia's blackened, smoldering body. It's a heartbreaking scene. In the basement of UPHQ, we see the reason for Roxas's sudden collapse. A microscopic violet had been rattling around inside his head, wreaking havoc with his motor control. Violet had been keeping tabs on Andromeda since she burst out of Legion HQ in pursuit of Roxas. Andromeda takes the opportunity to pounce on Roxas and begins pummeling his head, but he just manages to reach out and crush the protective housing of the building's atomic power supply, and it erupts in a huge green explosion. Violet just manages to escape with a life, but she's uncertain about the other two. Back at Legion HQ, the three founders are on the roof, ready for their last stand. 
and ready to put their plan into action. This plan is dependent on split-second timing and requires the participation of R.J. Brand, his mystery passenger, Brainiac 5 and his project, and the four Daxamites who have been telepathically alerted by Saturn Girl. I love the ominous panel where they approach in the dark clouded sky converging from different directions like the Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse, which makes the title of the story very appropriate. Brand's little cruiser is also converging on HQ, and the race is on. Brand just manages to beat the Daxamites there. The cruiser door opens, and out leans Jan Ara, the sole survivor of Trom, and the only being capable of turning a piece of Brainy's project into Tarnium. This allows Brainy to activate his device, his secret project, which opens up a Stargate just in the nick of time and right in front of the Daxamites who fly through. They can't help but fly through. The Stargate also begins to pull in Kaz, Saturn Girl, and Livewire too, but Brainy just manages to shut it down before they get sucked in. While the gate was open, Imra just manages to steal a glance at a screaming ghost-like being dressed in red with gold chest medallions. Wonder who that could be. Hmm. And then the recovery. Everyone, the entire Legion plus workforce, are bandaged up and receiving medical attention out on the plaza for some reason. As R.J. Brand introduces Jan, who uh, asks where the Daxamites were sent. Brainiac claims that the coordinates programmed into the Stargate were for an uninhabited yet livable world under a red sun. So the Daxamites will be safe and powerless until the science police can get there and arrest them. Jan wants to know beyond that what will happen to them because no punishment is too harsh. This sentiment is echoed by a descending Ultra Boy holding the wrapped body of his beloved as a shocked team looks on. And as they grieve, Leviathan pipes up with what he thinks are consoling words that maybe they should be grateful they only lost one member. And he looks to a weeping Violet for confirmation of that fact. In kind of an answer, we see on the next page represented a kind of an old Legion tradition, the Hall of Heroes, where, us, where are erected statues of its fallen members. And now there are three statues. Kid Quantum, the first Legion casualty. Apparition. And there's a statue of Andromeda. But later, in the office of President Chu, some top-secret information is revealed to Cosmic Boy, and to Cosmic Boy only. Andromeda actually did survive the atomic explosion in the basement of the UP headquarters. Roxas, we're not so sure about. But the administration feels that if word got out that a member of the Legion was directly responsible for the near destruction of the fledgling UP, then the damage to the organization's credibility would be would wreck everything they've worked so hard towards. So, for the time being, Andromeda will serve as the sole inmate of the recently decommissioned Planet Hell prison. That's it, that's where the issue ends. And so ends the first year of Adventures of the Reboot Legion. 
thought this issue was a pretty great wrap-up. Had action, high drama, suspense. Death of Apparition, definitely. Uh, that moment held the right amount of wallop. Like the way the story was told, keeping the reader, as much as the Daxamites, in the dark regarding the plan with the Stargate. The villain of the piece, the big bad Roxas, was handled quite well, I thought, too. I don't believe this is the best version of the character. I think the psychopathic dandy of the early five years later Legion run, which he was a much scarier, sinister villain, and he certainly did more with less, not having the vast superpowers of this version, but the Daxamite Roxas was certainly dastardly and a worthy and appropriate villain for an entire Legion of heroes. I don't think you can get too worked up about his planet of origin this time around. Might as well have a problem with Wally West not being Iris West's nephew, but his estranged brother. I'm not even sure if previous versions of Roxas were declared to be from any particular planet. Although here I think it was a nice twist for him to be from Daxum. I enjoyed the back and forth between him and Laurel. It was also nice to see the whole Legion involved in this adventure. It hasn't been the case lately. And same with the workforce. There are some good characters in that team. Too good to waste away under Macaulay. Hopefully they find their way back into the pages of the Legion soon. Okay, that ought to wrap things up. I want to thank the Legion of Superheroes itself. Twitter handle at BringBackLSH for retweeting my promotion for last episode. I want to hear what you have to say about this time in Legion history. Leave a comment on my blog, imthegun.blogspot.com. Hit me up on Twitter, where I post as at Mark Sweeney Jr. Or email me at imthegun at gmail.com. You can find older episodes of this podcast on the aforementioned blog or on iTunes, so check those out. All right, at this point, all that's left to say, I guess, is LOL, live on Legion. Thank you.